This episode is with Dan Berlin, CEO and social entrepreneur. Dan has launched a scholarship through Team C Possibilities. The scholarship details are in the podcast notes, along with the link to apply. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. I was told at age seven that I'd be blind by the time I was 20. Dan Berlin goes to the extreme to increase visibility about possibilities. I, I, I constantly found ways of adapting and overcoming. I mean, that's just kind of the story of my life was adapt, adapt, adapt. Today, Dan shares his story with Randy and details on a scholarship that benefits high school and college-age students. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we've created this whole platform about empowering students. And our focus, realizing that we can't be everything to everybody, and we're only going to be successful if we have a laser-tight focus and really work on one thing. So our one thing is... Dan Berlin is here with us today on Dangerous Vision. Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Wow, it's fantastic. I got to say, I mean, I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast. You've had some really fantastic guests on over the past year. So just just happy to be part of this. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you. Now, now uh, tell us a little about vanilla and why people uh, should uh, stop using vanilla as a synonym for boring. Vanilla has been my life for the more than the past decade, up until this past year, at least. That was, uh, no, I co-founded the vanilla extract company. Um mm-hmm about a little over a decade ago. So my life has been all about um, orchids, this fantastic plant that um, grows vanilla pods. It's the only edible fruit of an orchid and grown in some of the most beautiful and remote parts of the world, uh, places like Madagascar, the north north coast of Madagascar. That's right. I think um, you told me that like 90% of the world's vanilla comes from Madagascar or something like that. It's some huge, it does. Huge, it's, it's really... Um, Amazing and uh, and 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 remind me. We talked a little about this before, but again, I'll, I'll try to stop saying that since other people didn't get to hear that conversation. I'm just going to re-ask you some of the most interesting, of course, things you told me about. So, why is it? Um, it seems very strange that all the vanilla would come from one place. And also, when we spoke before, and and I don't know if this has changed, vanilla prices had been rocketing. They were at like ten times historical norms. So, what the heck was going on with with that? And to the extent that there's some reason related to Madagascar, whether it's weather or anything else that was driving price up, why can't they just you know grow vanilla somewhere else? Yeah, well, vanilla is fascinating, and it, it really started off in um, in southern Mexico. And was taken to Madagascar under the French colonial times in the late 1700s. Um, found that it really cultivated well in the rainforest along the northern coast. And during that time, too, the popularity grew in Europe significantly. I just read a great book um, uh, about um, about uh, matter uh, <laughs> called yeah. called Stuff Matters, and uh, yeah. and he goes through various um, you know kinds of objects of the world, steel and ceramics and other things, and one of them is chocolate. And he talks about mm. how chocolate is produced. And he said, you know, if you go and you pick up like a cocoa bean, you know, and you put it in your mouth and you expect a, a burst of chocolatey goodness, like you know, it's not even remotely that. You get some like weird nauseating taste and like the amount of processing that's required to get something that that tastes like chocolate. And I don't even just mean that. It's 
it's bitter and doesn't have sugar in it the way a chocolate bar would, but you know, that's not even, and, and so that now I'm curious about vanilla. Like if I bite down on it, is it going to taste like vanilla? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. And it's very, not very similar to cocoa. Am I remembering right? Did you tell me you were from Hershey? I am. Did I, I went imagine? to high school in Hershey. You went to Hershey. No, so you really, you're the, you're the vanilla and chocolate guy. You got it all covered. <laughs> I got to tell you, I paid, um, I paid the majority of my way through college working in a Reese's peanut butter cup factory uh-huh. in Hershey on my uh, breaks and summer breaks. I've had I mean, so many thousands of Reese's peanut butter cups. In my life. And you know, I'll tell you my funny Reese's peanut butter cup story. I was at one of my colleagues here, had a Christmas party a few years ago, and mm-hmm. they put out treats of various kinds. And then I ate for the first time in my life an actual non-Reese's peanut butter cup. In other words, that they had like made as a treat in the kitchen. I had no okay. idea that Reese's peanut butter cups were a um, a factory made version of a classic like baked good, essentially. Right? <laughs> I, I just yeah. thought that this was like something that was invented, you know, in the same way that the Hershey bar was. And uh, and it was, um, I would say, homemade peanut butter cups are a okay with me, but the Reese's variety also uh, quite wonderful. I get them all. All the time or, or did you get sick of them by working in the factory um yeah i must have said i, I probably had a pause with them for a year or two afterwards but they're still my favorite <laughs> by far it. i mean the nostalgia comes back quickly i grew up i grew but. up right next to a nabisco factory and when i say right next to i mean i don't know probably like 12 blocks from my house was a yeah. disco factory and the prevailing winds did not blow towards my house. But you know, well, one day in seven or so, um, uh, it would just, the whole, the whole neighborhood smelled like cookies. It was great. <laughs> well, I remember that. I mean, this time of year, that same thing, we, um, you know, I played uh, sports in high school a lot. So we'd always have practice after school. And by three thirty or so was when the shift change happened at the big chocolate plant, right? in Hershey. Mm-hmm. So by three thirty, when all the doors opened, just the entire town smells like chocolate. <laughs> it's just like in, and so what a, just like in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yeah, I, I never really pieced this together, but I think there is probably some connection with my enjoyment of running from being on a track team at three thirty in the afternoon in Hershey, being out in the track on a spring day and smelling chocolate. Interesting. I, I see the logic. And the, those associations you, could be, uh, yeah, you know very powerful. What this reminds powerful. me of is I, uh, the, I, have a, I have a colleague here who is a, a really top uh, marathon runner in his youth. In fact, I think he was on the on the U.S. Olympic marathon team, and uh, he was telling us a story about the uh, the runners uh, here at Harvard that they they have an event uh, that they call the Donut Marathon. And so the way it works is uh, before you start, you can eat as few or as many donuts as you choose, and then you run mm-hmm. a marathon. And for every donut you eat. Uh, you get five minutes off your time, right? So, oh, nice. so if you choose to eat a dozen donuts and then run a marathon, and if you're capable of running a marathon after eating a dozen donuts, then uh, you get an hour shaved off your time. But you know, if you one donut, that's five minutes. So, here's my question: uh, You know, how many how many donuts would you eat if you were trying to optimize the donut marathon? Oh, if I was trying to optimize the donut yeah. marathon, I would go for the dozen. You would get you think you, so of, you think you need a dozen donuts and still run a what, What's your best marathon time? Um, uh, what is it? Three thirty-six. Three thirty-six and three, three hours. And so you minutes. think you can do maybe like four, four and a quarter after a dozen donuts, and and so it's uh, so that that would be you know get you down to like three or three fifteen. Yeah, you know, um, the reality is I tend to have a um, I would say a stronger stomach than I do um, natural <laughs> ability for running. So I've had the same experience in a uh, in a beer mile race. I see. Ah, very similar. I don't. Yes. I I don't place in races very often. Mm-hmm. However, every time I run this one local race, I always get on the podium because because you get get uh, something off for every beer. 
Yeah, exactly. Nice. Or you just have to chug a beer every quarter of a mile. I see. I see. So everybody's, and, everybody's um, forced to have the beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, my guide, my guide doesn't have to do it as well because that would be pretty ugly. Yeah. But um, yeah, that, that's it. And um, the last time I did this, you know, my guide, who's an excellent runner, she turned to me and she goes, wow. You know your running's okay, but you can really drink fast. Yeah, you're you're a chugger. And that's the way I place exactly. That's good. So, eh? um, Look, I think I would do the same thing on the donut. Um, I think I could do the same. I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by stuff like that. this. In fact, I was I was uh, uh, just talking uh, to my friend here uh, a few minutes ago about about this subject, and and I think of this in terms of. Um, uh, I have this talk I give on on careers, um, and what I say to people is that that uh, the way to identify when you're young some potential career paths you might want to choose is to find combinations of skills that you have that are unusual because you know the rewards tend to go to the people who are very the very best at something. But it is incredibly difficult um, to be the very best in the world at anything. There's just, you know, there's like 8 billion people and there's so much talent out there. Um, but where you have a chance to be, or even to be, you know, one of the thousand best, you know, imagine like how hard it is to be one of the thousand best runners in the world or one of the thousand best beer chuggers in the world, right? Like both of those are absurd goals to have. But if you said, I want to be among the best in the world at combining those uh, two talents, that actually may be more feasible because, you know, you get to cherry pick uh, the things that you're good at. And the way I ended up uh, becoming a finance professor was, you know, I was a debater in college and I, I, was a, I was a math major and I sort of had this epiphany one day and realized, you know, I'm better, I'm better at math than pretty much all the people in the debate circuit and I'm a better talker than all the guys in the math department. So now I just have to find a field that kind of has both this talking skill and the math skill as key components uh, of the job oh, and, wow. and, you know, teaching finance, uh, did it. And, and that's how I was able to, you know, be reasonably good because, you know, as a math professor, I would not be, you know, at nearly the same, uh, uh, level. And, and, you know, if I were, I don't know, let's say a lawyer or something, which is, you know, more talking focused, you know, I think I'd be good at that, but, you know, not at the top of the top, you know, but by putting the two together, I've been able to do reasonably well. And, um, and so, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in economics and finance, we refer to these as efficient frontiers, these, these ideas of, you know, finding optimal combinations of things. And I think lots of people, um, actually, you know, can do well by taking this path by saying, Hmm, you know, I've got this, you know, uh, intense love of, and, and knowledge about, you know, say art. And then I also, uh, have, you know, a lot of, uh, personal charisma. And then I also, you know, have these, um, you know, uh, uh, writing skills, you know, how can I put those three things together to, to create a career that, that combines all my talents? I love that. You know. And that, that, that reminds me very much of, um, just that concept of the adjacent possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, from me, this book, you know, where, where good ideas come from. Mm -hmm. it, 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 a fantastic book that, um, my is daughter the, actually turned is, me on to from one of her. Impossible? Is that the name of the book? No, the, the, the book is called Where Good Ideas Come From. Oh, okay, great. I'm blanking on the author right now, but the book's called Where Good Ideas Come From. We'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll let David insert it in post. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> um, and it's this concept of the adjacent possible. And it, it's, it's very insightful for what you're saying. That's why I love the way you phrased it there about teaching this to students too. And it's all about that, you know, most great ideas weren't invented from zero to a hundred percent right away. You know, there were so many things, 99% of the work was done mm -hmm. and it just took the one person that connected the dots and made it this great invention. And they talk about the telephone, they talk about you know, so many um, discoveries in, in antibiotics and in everything that we look at from humanity 
basically the, the ground was set and the true great ideas were the ones that were able to pull from divergent sources and put them together in a, in a new way. So the real creativity was not in maybe the, the building up all the base, but it was in connecting those pieces together in mm-hmm. a way that had never been done before. And it's, it's kind of the same way what we see with like innovation hubs mm-hmm. in certain cities. I mean, it's that spillover effect of, you know, just interacting and, and being around ideas that are different than the way we're currently thinking. And, and sometimes those connections have really powerful uh, implications. Here is an excerpt from Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson. For the past five years, I've been investigating this question of where good ideas come from. It's the kind of problem I think all of us are intrinsically interested in. We want to be more creative. We want to come up with better ideas. We want our organizations to be more innovative. I've looked at this problem from an environmental perspective. What are the spaces that have historically led to unusual rates of creativity and innovation? One thing that's fascinating with this stuff is that that sometimes uh, there's a funny phenomenon where the person who makes the last discovery gets the credit uh, as the inventor of this combination of things, even though some of those earlier steps might have been equally important, right? And and the one that oh, I so much so I think about this all the time with um with with math, uh you know there's um uh uh you know this uh, famous um math theorem for Ma's last theorem, and uh, it was uh, uh, finally uh, proven by a Princeton professor. I think his name's uh, Andrew, Andrew Wild. Somehow that's uh, Wiles. I think his name is. I think it's Andrew Wiles. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, but what what an article I read about it pointed out was that there was this intermediate there in this uh, lemma as it's called you know sort of partial uh, sort of you know semi theory that was exceptionally difficult that somebody i believe in japan had proved just like a couple years earlier and then uh, Wilds was able to show that it, that that if that lemma was true that it implied for Miles last theorem but you could imagine if if Wiles had gone first and proved, oh, yeah. if such and such were true, then you'd have Fermat's last theorem. Then the other guy would be considered the guy who proved Fermat's last theorem, yeah. or, or perhaps they'd share credit or whatever. But uh, so, you know, uh, I guess uh, timing is everything sometimes. It is. I mean, one of the greatest examples, too, I, I think, along that, too, is like YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they weren't the first to invent streaming video, right. you know, or recording video, or the internet, or the means of distribution. It just had the weight for everything to be the bandwidth to be broad enough, right. the technology to be in place for video capturing, the streaming ability, all that to be there. And then it was a genius approach to put it together at the right time. Yeah, and I, I'm, using the right resources. Apply, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, no, yeah. I say that that's you know just that same example. Yeah, where it I, just happened to be the 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 environment was right. Do you, for the do you know about this platform called uh, Cameo? I just read about this yesterday. No, it's been around for years. That. I just read, but you know, I'm a little behind the time, so I just read about it for the first time. So here's how Cameo works: um, celebrities, uh, which can be a very broad range of people, from legitimately yeah. famous movie stars to you know people who were kind of briefly very famous, like you know Snooki from Jersey Shore, to yep. um, you know to people who maybe are only famous within certain niches and subgroups on the internet or whatever, um, post their willingness to make you a short video 
and the price. So the the article uh, focused to a certain extent on the uh, well. So it mentioned, for example, there's apparently there's a famous one with Terry Bradshaw, the you know star quarterback who's yeah. become a big uh, uh, football personality, uh, you know, announcer and and so forth. Uh, the actor, sort of disgraced actor Tom Sizemore, uh, is mentioned, and and you know, so for like one hundred and fifty dollars, you can get Tom Sizemore to like uh, do uh, birthday you know wishes for your friend, right? So so you know oh, you might yeah. have a friend who has a favorite scene from a movie and then you might be able to get the actor from that movie if you know i mean if your friend's favorite scene from a movie is played by scarlett johansson probably you're out of luck right but if your friend's favorite scene from the movie is played by somebody who is not such a big star then for a relatively modest amount of money uh you might be able to get uh you know this star to you know reprise this famous scene you know except putting your friend's name in in the name of the person they're about to arrest or or something like that right and nice. um and apparently the way it works is i think i think it's designed so that they they do a video clip of themselves on the phone and essentially no matter what they do it it gets posted so in other words they don't get to keep redoing it until it's perfect which maybe is part of the attraction for the celebrities is because otherwise they would be tempted to like yeah. work on it and work on it and work on it and apparently a lot of them are sort of famous screw-ups you know where they get the birthday person's name wrong and things like that and that those are even more amusing um, and, um so and you can go i think the rule is for each celebrity the last like half dozen they did stay up online for anybody to see Right, and then and then they roll off, but the the person who paid for it, of course, gets permanent access. And um, anyway, so again, just a classic thing where like, hmm, yeah, everybody's got a phone in their pocket, and people really want access to celebrities now. And so you know, somebody came up with this idea; they've been incredibly successful, you know, by by yeah. putting together a bunch of technologies that that make this possible. Yeah, no, that's great. So, uh, how much would you charge well, for uh, your you know for to to put Dan Berlin on cameo? <laughs> I'd probably be pretty cheap. Yeah. <laughs> they uh so I guess we should talk for like two minutes about blindness. I mean, my preference is generally to like not dwell on blindness in these podcasts, you know. It's so depressing. But yeah. but you know, give well, us an idea. It's not though. really that yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's all that depressing. So I mean <laughs> I think that's great. You know, um if just talking about blindness, going back to your uh the original point, which I mm-hmm. thought was was fascinating about the the way you you talk with students about careers. I think that has a really big impact when it comes to blindness because one of those factors that we can throw in the definition of success in pulling together divergent um, maybe interest and blindness or, or, or any sort of um, physical or cultural disability can fall into that into that realm. And that's one of the things that I'm really spending a lot of time chewing on these days. Mm-hmm. For example, um, being a marathon runner, you know, um, for me, that's okay. If I was, um, if I was not blind and a marathon runner, I would be just um, really enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. I would always be mid pack, decent, average. But then when I'm a blind marathon runner, all of a sudden it's it's interesting mm-hmm. to certain people. Yeah, and I think that that um, has good and bad connotations in society. My goal and one of the things really working on doing is to change a lot of that dynamic from being um, you know, exceptional because a person is, is blind mm-hmm. or you know, even in some cases of a certain race or a certain gender mm-hmm. out there in society. And that really doesn't have to be the underlying um, person underneath that uh, surface. 
And to really make that ordinary versus exceptional in the way we, um, as a society, deal with disability and other factors out there uh, that, that could hold someone back from truly achieving what their full potential is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think as a blind individual, we all hear this all the time about, you know, oh, it's so inspirational. And the inspiration comments um, are very nice. They're, they're often meant in yeah. a very good way. Yeah. I make sure it always, to, it's always like yeah. a positive light. I, I, I understand yeah, why very much so. some people may, may see it differently, but my view is hey, any, any, anything I can do to make anybody's life better, count me in. <laughs> Well, I think the underlying reason that some people are more, um, I wouldn't say bothered or maybe annoyed by the inspiration comment, is that um, we feel about ourselves that this should be ordinary behavior. Right. That the fact that, um, you know, you can be a professor at uh, one of the top schools in the world, or the fact that I can co-found a company, or the fact that we can run a marathon. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that we can do these things. These should be, in society's views, ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, they should not be limited by a physical disability. And the fact that we're not looked at at this point as that being typical is one of the things I think we can really work on changing moving forward. And it's really getting to that unconscious bias that's out there. It's not saying everybody can, you know... Be a professor. Not everybody's going to found a company. Uh, you know, it's Not funny. everybody's going to run a marathon. I was just saying to David that, that I worry sometimes that maybe the podcast is giving a skewed view in a way that may be inspirational, but at the same time uh, may be problematic. In other words, you know, you, you hear this statistic, 70% of blind people are unemployed and so forth, right? <coughs> and then here I am, I'm talking to people, they run companies, they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, climbing Mount Everest, you know, like blind people can do anything. And then, you know, I could sort of imagine blind people who, you know, maybe don't have all the gifts that, that, you know, some of my podcast guests have sitting there thinking, geez, you know, like, I, you know, I would love to just be able to just do a normal job. You know, I don't need to climb Mount Everest. And uh, mm-hmm. and and yet and and yet here's Randy making it sound like blindness is not a hindrance. You know, and and uh, it's he's making it sound like it's too easy. This is really really tough. I mean, I, I can say speaking for myself that I am supported by just an awesome web of humans and technology. Uh, my family who are just astonishingly wonderful and supportive. Um, you you know, uh, HBS, uh, which has just, you know, they just helped me in a million ways, all the, all the people here around the university that, and, and, and then just like the giant network of, of Uber and Lyft drivers and the people at the airports who take me through the airport, sometimes running with me through the airport because Mm -hmm. I'm a jerk who showed up late and they give huge effort to, to get me to that plane. I mean, and just, just a thousand people who push elevator buttons for me and keep me from falling down the stairs and, and, you know, so it's like, yeah, there's this giant web out there. And, and then as a result, I'm able to hold down a decent job. And uh, and then people say, I'm an inspiration. I'm like, well, you know, if it like, there's all the, you know what, it's funny. It's actually a little like this, another variant on this combo thing. This will be the running theme of this podcast because yeah. 
if you if you're really if you're if you're good at a bunch of stuff and then terrible at one thing, society will swing into action to help fix the one thing. But if you just kind of like have several things that hold you back, but no one giant thing that people have an easy name for, like blindness, I wonder if we're really not doing right by those people. Maybe we're actually doing a better job helping people like you and me who have a, a specific identifiable thing they can help with. I I, I agree. I, I think that that is true. And I think that there's so much unconscious bias out there that's well-meaning. And this is why the podcast is so excellent. And the work of getting um, getting the idea of ability out into the public. Mm-hmm. And even though the in, from an individual standpoint, it might be very inspirational. Mm-hmm. The idea of getting more and more and more role models out there, it raises the bar of expectation of what the what the population in general believes somebody with a disability is capable of doing. Yeah. And the more ways we can show different ways of overcoming obstacles to be successful in society, the better we are at having the general public question that first sense of doubt like hmm how are they ever going to do this job? Yeah. And really approach it in a different way and go Wow, yeah, I've heard of I've heard of people that are blind that can do all these other things, or I've heard of people that are blind that can be, um, you know, computer programmers or in right. cybersecurity or engineers. And wow, I wonder how you're going to approach it. What am I going to learn from this? Mm-hmm. You know, just changing that dynamic. I think having the podcast, I think putting more role models out there, and it starts early. It starts with the home life. It starts with family and very well-meaning. Um, parents, caregivers, teachers, in not assuming that something is impossible. Mm-hmm. Not that everybody is going to achieve everything that they want to, but just going into it with a deck not stacked against us or against an individual thinking that I don't see how they're going to do it. So right from the start, there's this um, need to overcome the bias from those just around us. Mm-hmm. If it's a neutral playing field from the start, I think it helps to facilitate ability being displayed in many forms, forms we haven't even seen yet. And that that to me is the fascinating part. That to me is what the podcast does. And by you know our team see possibilities, that's the whole drive behind creating um, public facing scholars that show different majors and how attending university and being successful academically is not limited by blindness. And, and I promise we will get to your, to your scholarship program because I'm eager to, to talk about that. But, but, you know, before we do it, I, I, I wonder if some people might listen to us and thinking and think and think themselves and, and probably they'd be too polite to say, you know, there's this great line from, from Pete Townsend. He was talking about the song, my generation. He said, you know, for years and years, I've lived in dread of the day that people would say to me, when you were 21, you sang, I hope I die before I get old. Now you're old. Yeah. <laughs> he said, but fortunately, people are far too polite to ever say anything like that. So people would probably be too polite to say to us what I'm about to say. But, you know, couldn't somebody say to us, oh, guys, so this is great, right? On the one hand, you want us to treat you like, say, oh, the, no limits on these blind people. We're not going to prejudge them in any way, shape, or form or think they're capable of any less. On the other hand, you want all kinds of help from us. I mean, look, I want to be very clear. I'm not putting this, you in this box, Dan, but I want all kinds of help. 
right? I like need people to help me out. You know, I'm fumbling my way through things and I really appreciate all the people who are helping me. But then isn't it unfair for me to say to the world, yeah, I want you to give me lots of help. And then I also want you to treat me like I'm totally the same as everybody else and, and shouldn't have any uh, lowered expectations. Well, I, I, I totally agree. And I would say that every person is an individual. And if I could see or find the one person that's capable of surviving and thriving completely on their own mm. without other people supporting and helping them along the way, mm -hmm. then I think that they, would be they get incredible. To throw, they get to throw this first stone, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> As Jesus exactly. would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To that point, I mean, so many people have struggles. Mm -hmm. And ours is just um, easy to label. Right. And it's easy to identify. If we really took away um, the effect of, and, and this can be broad, I mean, the effect of skin color, gender, right. physical disability, that's easy to label and therefore comes with a whole bucket of preconceived ideas. Because yeah. if that was the case, then every kid, every white male kid born in the U.S. Um, to decently well-off social economic situation should be attending Harvard. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not the case. That's right. You know, every one of us has our strengths and our weaknesses. Yeah. Well, because I mean, some, All, of the, some, of yeah. the, some of those kids would think about Princeton for sure, you know. Oh. Yeah, I mean, they, you, know, you could <laughs> yeah, go yeah. that way. <laughs> no, it's true. Look, no, you're absolutely but, but right. Yeah, the, no, the what, of what challenges, the people, I, I think mm -hmm. that's exactly right. I read this article by a guy who was like a psychiatrist or something, and he, he started counting up all the people he knew and what percentage of them had some kind of serious problem in their <laughs> mental health life, like like drug yeah. or alcohol uh, addiction, um, couldn't sleep at night, like like virtually got no sleep, like, you know, um, you know, serious neuroses, uh, you know, other kind of, and he's like, he's like, he 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 concluded that maybe half of everybody in America has has something yeah. pretty serious that, that they're that they're dealing with ADHD, you name it, you know, just like it's just um, there's so life is so hard, you know, and the modern world is so complicated, and we we didn't really fully yeah. evolve for it. And obviously, what's great is again we've got a society and technology and all those things to help us all muddle through it. But yeah, it, it ain't easy, right? It ain't easy even. Well, here's a here's a great thing. I mean, one of the things that makes um you know one it's our definition of success. You know, is success financial? Is it emotional? Is mm -hmm. it spiritual? Is it happiness? You know, we we can choose to define our own success. And then two, we we combine that with community connection with other people. And what what we've seen is a lot of the mental health issues that we're facing, which are real and severe, oftentimes due to being feeling of disconnected. Mm -hmm. The real challenge for blindness is blindness is one of those conditions that can really lead to a feeling of isolation and disconnectedness. Right. Yep. And that is something from a societal standpoint that we can reach out to. Getting back to your point about you know, taking and appreciating help, I don't see anything wrong with that. Right. What, what I'm saying is from a society standpoint, I think they say, okay, they, they need some help seeing what's ahead of them. They need some help crossing the street here maybe. Um, but what are they capable of? Mm. And not just assuming that just because somebody can't, Cross the street without telling if a car is coming doesn't mean they're not capable of developing, you know, the next great algorithm for mm -hmm. predicting, you know, personal right. behavior. That's a good point. And 
removing those, that sense of bias is what we're trying to do through creating these role models. That's why the podcast is so important. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really on a deeper level is, um, you know, think of the value we're wasting in economic resources by not tapping into allowing everybody to find their full ability right. in the society. I mean, we're just not using our assets to the full potential. Yep. No, it's 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 totally true, right? Obviously, the human capital is is where uh, you know most of society's value is, and uh, I agree that we we let a lot of it go to waste through not educating people with incredible talent, or through you know failing to recognize, yeah, because somebody has a limitation, not realizing all they can do. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. Um, in, in hindsight, I would say that it it taught me to problem solve constantly. This period we're in now, our great advance is, is matching and connection. But first, Life as a Blind Person by Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Sassy Outwater-Wright. And today I wanted to address a question I specifically got from someone in our community. She wrote me a couple weeks ago and she said, Sassy, I really struggle with eating out in public. As a blind person, it's really uncomfortable for me to handle my food. So I want to talk about that for a second. Um, yes, we're taught techniques during rehabilitation training in terms of cutting food, um, moving it with a fork, making sure that it stays on the plate with a piece of bread or the knife. If you are totally blind, knowing what is on your plate is tough, unless somebody tells you where it is, that classic clock face orientation thing. Sometimes we just stab the plate and try to figure it out. Um, if I'm with a bunch of blind friends, I'm not gonna necessarily ask anybody to identify what, where the food is on my plate at three o'clock. I'm just gonna go adventure. That's just generally kind of how I do my food. I'm just gonna go adventure and see what I find. Yes, that has resulted in me putting some very interesting things into my mouth, including the lemon wedge, the butter pat, the garnish, and other things. Um, but it's highly entertaining. And it makes for a good laugh and a good icebreaker at the table. And sometimes that's a good thing. So don't be afraid to make a mistake or spill. Life's too short to get worried about it. If, as long as you're with friends, just have fun and eat. And if you do have to be polite and professional, just use your fork and your knife and do the British thing, one in each hand. Use the knife to keep the food safely on your plate. Hold the knife near the edge of the plate so that as you move your fork toward your knife, the food hits the knife and slides onto your fork. For Life as a Blind Person, I'm Sassy Outwater-Wright. Bon appétit. Tell us, you know, you talked about high school sports and stuff. Did you have vision issues back then and kind of what happened? You know, was that something you were overcoming when you were doing those sports or you could see pretty decently then? Do you see anything now? Take us through it. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting story. And I, I got to say, you know, when I, my perspective now as someone who's in their late forties versus my perspective as somebody in their, say their twenties is just remarkably different. Mm -hmm. So I was diagnosed when I was seven. I was a second grader that couldn't see the board well and um, glasses didn't help. So I was diagnosed with um, originally Stargardt's, which then was um, changed or rediagnosed to Conrad dystrophy. Mm -hmm. um, slowly progressive. I was told at age seven that I'd be blind by the time I was 20 mm -hmm which is a pretty tough nut for yeah, a seven-year-old to deal with. But, uh, you know, I had tremendously supportive parents. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the fascinating thing when I look back now is my tremendously supportive parents weren't the advocate parents that went out there and um, looked for services for me. 
they were the parents that said, yeah, but you seem to be doing pretty well, so I think you can keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So they weren't ones to um, let me off the hook for anything. And I, I honestly can't say whether that's better or worse, how I would be if I was my own child now. Mm -hmm. But um, it worked for me. So on through high school, I went on to um, do decently well in high school. Um, I, I, I constantly found ways of adapting and overcoming. I mean, that's just kind of the story of my life was mm -hmm. adapt, adapt, adapt. So I played sports. I played football. Um, what position did you play? Well, I was originally um, playing linebacker mostly, mm -hmm. middle linebacker and outside linebacker, um, and then some different offensive positions. Were you able As to follow, I, follow the ball okay? Or, or you know, because I, I could imagine that somebody who couldn't see might say, well, if I'm on the line, I'd really just have to hang on to that guy in front of me and either block him or not or knock him down. But as opposed to, you know, say as a wide receiver or something, where following the ball's flight would be important. Linebacker, obviously, in between. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where it was. So that was when I was maybe a freshman into a sophomore, and I had the right build and um, call it physical speed for it. Mm -hmm. um, however, not being able to see the ball became a significant issue. So I moved closer and closer to the line. So by the time <laughs> I was a senior, you know, I was um, still starting, but I was uh, a defensive end and an offensive guard. Yeah, And I found a way to adapt in a way that I could still be part of the team and still mm -hmm. contribute and still love what I was doing, but realized there was no way I wasn't following the ball. I couldn't see which uh, running back had the ball and yeah. which receiver was uh, looking at looking at whom. And things like that just became something I realized early. Uh, one of the things I would do differently, looking, if I could talk to my younger self, is um, suck up my fear and tell someone that I couldn't see. Yeah. I didn't tell anybody that I had an eye condition until well after college into wow. my career. Wow. You know, I hid it. I hid it. I hid it. I no, hid could it. you see so well. for reading books in high school? Could you see well enough to read books? <coughs> um, I could see well enough to read books in high school, mm -hmm. although it was a strain. Yeah. Uh, by the time I got to college, um, I really struggled with reading. And again, I, I never really thought about going to ask the university for support. In hindsight, I know now is yeah. great. I could have had a reader. I could have had you know, right. a bunch of other things going on. And this is in that you know, early 90s. Uh, but even at that time, I was just I was too embarrassed by it. I did not want to be different. No, that that's what got me thinking about this thing we were talking about earlier. Exactly. is like once I started carrying the white cane and self-identifying as blind, life got so much easier. And and I, I didn't want to do that sooner, partly because, you know, I didn't want to be a freak, but partly because I didn't want to feel like I was like taking advantage of something that was meant, you know, for people who were really blind. I'm not blind. I just have bad eyesight, right? And so I couldn't but yeah. but man, it's tough because society is not well set up for for the bad eyesight people. It's really good for the blind people. I mean, it's, well, not really good the, for the, it's not really good for the blind people, but at least no. a, a sincere, strong effort is being made to help blind people, which sometimes is enough and sometimes isn't. But, you know, obviously I'd still rather, you know, uh, have, 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 you know, just bad eyesight than be blind. But I just, uh, I do, I am fascinated by this question of when, when we as a society think it's our job to really bend over backwards to, to help and when, and when we don't. Well, here, here's a, Big part of my take with this, something I've learned over the past, you know, you know, several years, is it's not selfish to take care of yourself, even if that means asking for help and asking other people to accommodate you. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's extremely not selfish, in fact, it's often selfish not to mm -hmm. reach out <clears throat> because we can't help others 
unless we help ourselves or until we help ourselves. It's a it's a it's an airplane analogy of you know have to put your mask on first before helping others. Right. That's a that's a yeah. That's a good one. Yep. And <clears throat> if we're going after if we're going after accommodations because it's outside expectations on us that wow you should have accommodations you know that I think most people would struggle with that at some point it's it's defeating but when we go about this say I want to maximize my ability I want to find yeah. what I'm capable of doing and in order to do that I need some help yeah you know and and again I get back to society everybody needs some help yes you know fact, that, that's it I'm and there's no shame it, in that. I'm going to make your point yeah. in a super strong way. Here's my advice to anyone out there listening and asking themselves, oh, should I accept this help? You know, I shouldn't need this help. Take the help. So I got two step. I have a two-step plan for you. Step one, take the help. Step two, help a bunch of other people so much that you know that you weren't taking advantage of the system, right? And then everybody wins, right? You got the help you needed. And uh, you helped a bunch of other people and they got the help they needed and you don't have to feel guilty that you took help because you know you gave back at least as much as you took. And um, that, that is the plan. And, and I think you, it sounds like you, like me, for a long time didn't want to take the help, you know, felt like we were too proud to take the help. But, you know, pride, you know, it's funny. Pride's a funny thing, right? It's like on the one hand, obviously, you know, the pride is back, you know, this kind of thing. You know, there's obviously a positive connotation there. And yet at the same time, you know, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Like, like I think um, to have a little humility and say, I don't mind taking some help. I don't mind recognizing that I need some help. And then at the same time, of course, uh, I, everybody else needs help too. So let's get out there and do something for them. That's a, that's a powerful combination. You sold the vanilla company, right? So that's, um, am I remembering right? I think you were like in the process of selling when I last talked to you. Yeah, we did. We did. We realized that in order to grow, um, we needed a big partner on board with us. So in um, August 2018, we sold to Archer Daniels Midland, yeah. um, a really big agricultural Yeah, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's as big as it gets. And that's a, that's a huge score for any entrepreneur uh, to celebrate. You know, they always make that joke about boats that, you know, the, the second best day of your life is when you buy your boat and the best day is when you sell it. And, you know, maybe, yeah, exactly. uh, maybe that's true for, for businesses too, right? The second best day is the day you create your business, but selling it, I mean, then that's points on the board they say, right? You, you know, you know, you won. So congratulations on that. And of course, Team C Possibilities, which we formed back in 2015, we're going Mm -hmm. on our fifth year. So Team C Possibilities was originally set up um, 2015 as um, traveling the world, doing these epic endurance challenges, you know, running rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, um, Mm -hmm. ran the Inca Trail, uh, 26 miles, uh, normally a four day hike. We did that in in one day in about 12 hours. And then uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in two days in the dark. Oh, wow. Um, so, oh, so that t- was a big so, one. So tell me a little about those activities. I, I interviewed um, uh, earlier uh, um, uh, the guy uh, – uh, <coughs> um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, I guess, from the guide dog school who uh, was telling me about how he he runs marathons with uh, his dogs as guides. Oh, yeah. But I, and, and do you ever do that or do you run with human guides or do you just uh, you know tough it out and hope you don't hit a rock? <laughs> no, I run with human guides. Yeah, yeah. No, so, definitely so how, human so guides. How does that work? So, are you are you tethered? Is that how it works? Or do you have your hand on uh, your sometimes. shoulder or what? Has, what's, what's it depends on the do? terrain. I mean, we we pick these really difficult terrains. Yeah. So sometimes it's my hand on the shoulder. Sometimes it's two people in front of me with a hand on each of their shoulders or their hydration packs. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we're in a straight line, and I'll use a hiking pole mm-hmm. and have them run in front of me, and I'll hold the hiking pole behind them so I have a rigid connection. Uh huh. Um, other times it's just all verbal. 
you know, we're mm-hmm. side by side or front to back and they'll call out stream crossings or rocks or steps. And, um, I do my best to, you know, is that scary when they're like stream and you're like, okay, leap in the air. Hope, hope you land on the far bank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, jumping is never the problem. It's landing. That's the concern. <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, that's it. So no, we, we just, and again, it's this adapting, you know, we adapt to the different terrains we go to. Some of them are, you know, easier than others. Some of them are much more technical. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a great, we did, uh, so our goal is to do seven continents. Okay. And uh, we've done five so far. The most recent was New Zealand last year. And that was just a terrain change. We did um, uh, a 35-mile um, single-day run on the North Island, which was a lot of scree and um, um, yeah, more volcanic rock trails. It's just beautiful, open, a bit more exposed. And then like... Um, seven miles of just mud in the rain to finish, <laughs> which was horrible, but uh, we survived. Mm. And then we went down to the South Island, which is literally like a Jurassic Park. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, green, strong mountains, waterfalls everywhere. And, you know, that was a whole different technique there because there was a lot of, um, a lot of rock and streams and things like that to cross. So we just adapt as we go. And uh, yeah, that went great. It was a great that's success. That's amazing. Have you have you had like uh, real close calls with uh, with danger? I mean, to me, the idea of even fully sighted some of the kind of climbs people do and stuff just seem unbelievably risky. And then to to do that without really being able to see where you're going. Well, nothing my guides have told me at the time. Um, <laughs> Afterwards, they're like, yeah, Afterwards, it's a whole different story. There, <laughs> exactly. We were on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and one of them was videoing from a, a little bit back. And you know, nobody told me that there was like a thousand foot drop off, like a foot oh to my, my right. Oh my and we're going there, and they're just like, yep, stick close behind me. You know, that type of thing. I'm like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> and then later we watch a video where people are going like, oh my God, I can't believe you could have died. Yeah, so this morphed over the past couple of years. We started doing that, and then we turned this into our what we call our inspiration um, platform within the organization. Um, it became through work in a bunch of different organizations. I was on the board of a couple groups, really focusing on employment. And um, one of the things I realized in looking at jobs, one of the hurdles that lots of people had who were vision impaired applying for jobs was really um, – one, being able to articulate clearly and concisely how they would do the job. And oftentimes, you know, they just didn't know because they didn't have the experience and it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the ability, but maybe not clearly able to articulate it. And two is just having that confidence and background to get the education part, the learning part behind them, which forces an employer to say, look, okay, they were able to figure out their way to get through a four-year degree or a graduate degree. Now it puts some pressure on me as the employer to say, well, what about my job would make mm-hmm. this that they couldn't do it? Right. So that shifted our focus or at least my passion for focus into the after graduating high school and before entering the workforce time of life and really focus on academic learning education in the college years. Basically creating role models that can show examples of successfully navigating dozens of different career academic career paths and and how they did it through the university programs or college mm-hmm. or trade school 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not limited to right. to four-year colleges. It could be trade school. It could be anything. Not everybody so, needs to learn Latin and Greek. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've created this whole platform about empowering students. Mm-hmm. And our focus, realizing that yeah, we can't be everything to everybody, and we're only going to be successful if we have a laser-tight focus and really work on one thing. So our one thing is promoting kids with the ability, desire, and drive to be successful in university or in college or in trade school. And through that, we've developed a scholarship program that gives up to $5,000 scholarships and also put together a um, peer support group and a mentorship group that allows students who are studying, you know, very diverse academic paths mm-hmm. in different schools all around the country to be able to be connected with each other, share problems, um, give examples, and then also be introduced to successful people in their careers that have figured out how to navigate those waters already as mentors. So it, it's fantastic. You know, in some of the discussions we had with our first cohort of scholars this past year, mm-hmm. uh, we really quickly got into um, topics past the academic part and more to, okay, I'm living away from home for the first time on mm-hmm. a college campus and I'm really uncomfortable in the dining halls when somebody comes up to me and says hi mm-hmm. and I have no idea who they are. Right. I maybe met them last week in a class. And just that encouragement from others about, well, how did you deal with it or how did you deal with it? Yeah. You know, are you upfront or are I you still, not? I still struggle with it sometimes. I don't know whether to say yeah. sorry, I can't see you or whether to, you know, yeah. fake, fake it and figure I'll probably fake, get it from, you know, be able to solve it from context clues. <laughs> and for eight, you know, for an 18 year old freshman to be yeah, able to exactly. share that, and, that and, was, and hear opinions from, you know, five or six other students on how they've dealt with that in the past, especially mm-hmm. some upperclassmen. That's been very powerful. Um, we had students that come in and said, okay, I have, I, I really like my studies. Um, however, I have one professor that doesn't understand that he needs to get the test to the test center for me to be able to take it. And he keeps missing that time, so it throws off my schedule, so I've prepared, but the test isn't there. Now I have to take it over the weekend. You know, things like that. How do you deal with a professor? And um, we had a great dialogue from many of the students about what they've done in the past. You know, some have scheduled meetings pre-semester. Others have, have gone straight through using the office on campus. Others have, um, you know, really relied a lot more on email and things like that. But just building that connection with the professors prior to the semester was very helpful. And hearing that other people have already done that and it's worked made it a little easier than that intimidating factor of a, you know, 18-year-old student approaching a professor, a tenured professor and saying, mm. this is what I want you to do for me. And that, that's a right. very intimidating position to be in from the student standpoint. Yeah. So that's what we do. That's we provide financial support and uh, we provide mentorship yeah. and um, just, just connection among students who are in the similar situation, although studying everything from law to cybersecurity to economics to mathematics. You know, to engineering, you know, just all across the country. 
So Dan, as you know, um, we like to finish up by asking people to tell us, uh, you know, sort of a favorite story of theirs, you know, their best or, or most interesting story. And uh, my recollection is that last time you had an amazing story about how you got into uh, marathon running and such relating to time on the beach. So if you want to tell us that story, you can, or if you've got an even more amazing story that's uh, come up since or that, uh, or that you'd prefer to tell, uh, you can do that. Oh yeah. No, I, uh, one of my favorite stories is my beach story because, um, it involves my kids and I love, I love my kids. Um, the, the, the beauty is, um, kids don't hold back. They may think they know everything when they're uh, teenagers, but this story goes back to pre-teenage years when, um, I had moved out to Colorado in, um, 2007 and uh, about a year later, we were um, back in Maryland, actually, at the beach with them. And my son was probably, call it four, and my daughter, 10. And uh, we're hanging out there, and they wanted to bury me in sand on the beach. I said, okay, that's great, that's great. Then they got all these shells, then they were laughing, then they wanted to take a picture. And then they kind of joking about the beached whale. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, well, what do you mean about a beached whale? And they're, they're looking at me, and they're like, well, dad, that's you. You know, I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, come on, you're not, you're not quite as skinny as you used to be. And I said, what do you mean? And they go, well, you know, since we moved out to Colorado, you really don't do much. You work all the time and, and we love you, but, um, yeah, you're, you, you remind us of beach whale. So I said, well, that's wrong. I was always in decent shape, you know, growing up. So that was the, um, impetus to, uh, get me to come back and start working out, mm-hmm. which was a real challenge, you know, being blind, being in the place, this was 2007. So there wasn't Uber. We didn't have Lyft. Um, I, I lived in a, a pretty quiet neighborhood, but I realized physically, yes, I fell into that situation where my blindness was preventing me from being physically active, mm-hmm. which I think is a huge thing for our community. And it's one of these things that, you know, MAB with Team with a Vision and, and, and some of these, you know, really great programs like Achilles do a great job at, at keeping us active. And for me, in my own words, I was, you know, late 30s and uh, realized that um, I really struggled to run two miles around my neighborhood. Mm. So I took out my cane and um, mapped out a route and just started that. Um, granted, the longest I'd ever run before was uh, maybe a 10K race in high school. Mm -hmm. But it was that feeling of ability then that really helped me turn the corner because I said, okay, well, I I am blind. I'm not going to do with that. I'm not going to be able to overcome, you know, that in a way that's going to make me the same as everyone else who can see. However, again, it's about mitigating weaknesses. Okay, that, that doesn't mean I can't run. That doesn't mean I shouldn't be in shape. So I figured it out, mapped out a plan, eventually signed up for a half marathon race. And before going to the half marathon, I realized, okay, I don't want to trip anybody else up here. I don't want to be a, a, a negative in the race. So I called the race director and it took him about three hours before he had nine different potential guides wow. lined up for me to do. Amazing. And to me, that that was such an eye-opening experience, no pun intended, because this was one of the ways that I found, and, and for the past decade of doing this now, that I can give back to allowing so many other athletes, that are much better athletes than me, the chance to run this together, I learned so much from them, and I give them the opportunity to give in such a great way to me and to the community by running these races together with me. 
so it was a way I took, you know, these snarky comments from mm-hmm. my, you know, pre-adolescent kids about um, not being as thin as I used to be into something that's really changed my life for the better. For the better. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's such a good way. It is wonderful to have people around who will give it to you straight. And I agree that sometimes it's only, it's only the tiny ones who uh, haven't learned to sugarcoat things for us. And uh, yeah, exactly. they, can, they can goad us to, to greater heights and, and things that'll keep us healthy and, and happy and successful uh, so much the better. That's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story. Well, listen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. And what, what you're doing is great. I mean, you're really making a difference here spreading these messages it's it's all positive that helps everybody i appreciate uh appreciate you and and all the guests who come on so thanks dan and uh thank you take care you've been listening to the dangerous vision podcast a production of the massachusetts association for the blind and visually impaired i'm david brown 